Let's pray. Father, we come once more before your throne asking that you would help us. Help us, Father, as we come to study your word. Father, that you would show us wonderful things. Help us to see, in one sense, what we are to avoid most passionately. Father, may we be found this morning faithful, and may we, as a result of looking at your word, be transformed, changed. And may we be the kind of people who avoid the error and the dangers of formalism and traditionalism. And may we be the kind of people who offer to you pleasing worship that flows from the heart. And Father, we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me back to the Gospel of Mark. We come this morning to chapter 7, which is a new chapter for us, and really a new epic in the ministry of Jesus. As he turns his eye away from Galilee onto the surrounding regions. And what we have this morning in our passage is, is really a, an example of what not to be. The Lord, as he's getting ready to leave Galilee, is confronted by a group of scribes and Pharisees. Now, these are the examples, the negative examples for us that we'll set up and look at this week and next week as well. But we see in them an example of traditionalism, formalism, an example of doing the right things, perhaps, while their hearts were far away from the Lord. And so these scribes and Pharisees come to Jesus, confront Him as He's on His way out of Galilee, and they're unhappy with the way that Jesus has been training His disciples. And primarily, they're upset that Jesus seems to be entirely neglecting the traditions that the scribes and the Pharisees have received and are actively passing on to the people of Israel. And Mark chapter 7, verses 1 to 13, is the report of that interaction. And what we see here is the reality that among religiously minded people, and I would lump us into that category. I don't mean religion in a negative way. I mean religion in a positive way, James. This is pure religion. So religion in a positive way. And among religiously minded people, there is a constant tendency to exalt man-made traditions above the Word of God. And maybe if we don't exalt them above the Word of God, there's a tendency to twist the Word of God to match our traditions. And what we see in our text is that anytime you exalt tradition above the Word of God, or you twist tradition, or twist the Word, rather, to match your tradition, you always end up with spiritual ruin, either for yourself or for your disciples, the people who are following you. And you've seen that in life. But we will see it, really we'll see it several times over the next few weeks. 
So not only that is there a tendency to exalt traditions above the Word of God and twist the Word of God to match our traditions, but we also see in this passage that there is a way for people who are committed to purity of worship and purity of life and holiness. There's a way for us. I would say we are committed to purity of worship. Are you? Amen? Hopefully. (laughs) And holiness of life. Godly living. There's a way for people like us who are committed to these things. There's a way for us to easily drift into formalism that lays a primary emphasis on the externals of religion while largely neglecting the heart. And if you look back on the history of redemption, you can see that this was a constant concern for God. There was this steady tendency in God's people to drift away from true religion of the heart towards the mere externals of religion. And so over and over and over again, God is constantly calling His people back to a religion that flows first from a heart. We see this as early as Deuteronomy 10, verse 12. Moses writes, Now Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways and love Him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Deuteronomy 11, verses 13 and 14. It shall come about, if you listen obediently to my commandments, which I am commanding you today, to love the Lord your God and to serve Him with all your heart and with all your soul, He will give you rain for your land in its season. Deuteronomy 26. This day the Lord your God commands you to do these statutes and ordinances. You shall therefore be careful to do them with all your heart and with all your soul. We see the same thing in Deuteronomy 6, 4-5. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. The reason there's such a repetition is because God's people have a default tendency. And that is to drift into the outward forms of religion and worship and sacrifices while largely neglecting the heart. And we are not immune to that tendency either. And what we see is the Lord constantly calling His people back to a pure heart worship. He calls them back to it, but He also rebukes them when they fail to do it. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 10. Just listen to this. The Lord rebuking His people for doing all the right things while their heart is far from Him. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 10. Hear the word of Yahweh, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Now you say, Sodom and Gomorrah, those were not the people of God. Well, Isaiah is actually talking about Judah and Israel here. He's calling them Sodom and Gomorrah because that's what they're acting like. In verse 11, he says, What are your multiplied sacrifices to me? All this formal worship. What is all this to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. And I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, and goats. These are all things God had commanded them to do. 
to make sacrifices. But here the Lord is saying, I, I have no pleasure in these things. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of solemn assemblies, I cannot endure iniquity in the assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. Now these were things that God had instructed them to do. And now he's saying, all of these things are abomination to me. Why? Well, because the people were coming to God and doing all the right things, while one, their lives were a total wreck, but two, and maybe more fundamentally, they were offering these sacrifices to God mindlessly and hypocritically. It had become for them just mere ritualism. And because of that, their worship was an abomination and even repulsive to God. It's amazing. It's striking, sobering. But it's a reminder that God, all the way in the Old Testament, and even into the New, and even now, God has always been after the heart. That's what God has been after. And history shows us, though, while God prioritizes the heart, man's tendency is to prioritize the external. And so God, over and over, is having to warn His people. And what we find in our passage this morning is our Lord attacking this same issue. Where God is after the heart, but men are settling for mere external religion. And so what our Lord does in this passage is He attacks the issue of traditionalism and formalism head-on and shows us that any time you exalt tradition above the Word of God, like the scribes and the Pharisees did here, the inevitable result is spiritual ruin. So why don't you stand with me, and we'll read our passage and then get into examining it. Mark chapter 7, and we'll begin in verse 1 and read down to verse 13. <clears throat> and the Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around him when they had come from Jerusalem and had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the tradition, traditions of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. The Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the traditions of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? And he said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. He was also saying to them, You are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. 
For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or his mother, whatever I have that would help you is Corban, that is to say, given to God. You no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother, thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down. And you do many things such as that. You may be seated. Now there is a lot in this section. But the text sort of breaks up into three sections. Uh, The first section we'll we'll call the traditionalists. And it begins in verse 1. Look at it with me. We're not told when this happened, but at some point as Jesus is wrapping up his ministry in Galilee, verse 1, the Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around him when they had come from Jerusalem. Now we've seen that these two groups, the scribes and the Pharisees, are often referred to together. We saw them, met them in Mark chapter 2. But I want to take a minute to sort of set up this week and the next week, um, or the next time I'm in the pulpit, I want to set this up for you because we need to understand who these two groups of people are, the scribes and the Pharisees. I'm calling them the traditionalists. That's what they were. And by that, traditionalism, traditionalists, I mean, mean people who... Uh, exalt tradition above the word of God, or stick with tradition for tradition's sake. And the first group mentioned here are the Pharisees. The Pharisees, they were literally the separated ones. That's what their name meant. And they emerged as as a sect of Judaism a few centuries before the coming of Christ, when the Greeks under Alexander the Great, were the most powerful nation in the world. And the Greeks were pressuring the entire world to conform to the standards of the Grecian lifestyle. We, you know that as Hellenization. They were forcing cultures, communities, states to conform to the standards of Greek life. The options before anyone who was conquered by Alexander and the Greeks, their options were either capitulate to uh, the Grecian standards, or to be killed. During that time, the Jews, many of the Jews, actually not all, but many of the Jews compromised under the pressure, and they dropped their distinctly Jewish Old Testament practices and modified, capitulated, modified their religion to fit with the pressures of Greek culture. But others stood firm and refused to bow to the pressure from the Greeks. And they stood on the Old Testament law and wanted to guard themselves against the perversions of the world and Grecian culture. This is where the Pharisees came in. They emerged sometime between Alexander the Great and Jesus' time. They emerged as the protectors of tradition and they stood between the people and the priests and called for both people and priests to stand on the principles of the Word of God that had been passed on to them. So it's in this sense that they were the separated ones. They were separated from the rest of the Jews who capitulated to Greek culture, 
and they were separated from the Greek culture itself as those who were purely followers of God. And they had dedicated themselves not only to guard the law, but they wanted to guard the traditions of the Jews as well and to teach and apply those traditions and the law to every aspect of Jewish life. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm listening to that and I'm thinking, that sounds like a pretty noble effort. You've got a world of, uh, that's pressuring God's people, and then within that you have a group of people that says, do not bow to them. Stand. Stand firm. And so initially this seems like an admirable movement. They had good intentions to preserve the truth and stand against ungodliness. But somehow over time this initial purpose was lost and the tradition became prized above everything else. And this is the way it works, isn't it? A tradition that starts off good This is what we want to do to protect the Word of God. We want to protect ourselves. We want to be holy. We want to distance ourselves from secular culture. We want to be salt and light. We want to be faithful. And so we set up these traditions to keep us safe, to keep the Word of God, to preserve preserve it. But somehow, the traditions begin to grow and bury the Word of God. There was another issue with the Pharisees. They weren't that noble their effort was but they looked at the old testament as if it was insufficient in many ways they understood that the old testament at least was not specific enough to govern every dimension of jewish life under the greeks and so what they wanted to do is they wanted to come along alongside the bible the old testament and sort of infuse it with some more practical instruction A little more guidance to help God's people live holy lives in the world. So they compiled a massive collection of ancient rabbinic instructions that were designed to help preserve the holiness of God's people and sort of apply Old Testament principles. And we'll see this work out here in a few minutes. And they also combined with this tradition the commentary of the rabbis into one book called the Talmud. You guys have heard of the Talmud. The Mishnah and the Gemara, which was the commentary on the Old Testament law, was combined to form the Talmud. But the Mishnah was the oral, the capturing of all the oral traditions that were designed initially to be sort of like a fence set up to guard against breaking the law of God. But what happened was that as they sort of collected these oral traditions, the oral tradition became primary. And the Word of God was buried under these traditions. And the laws that the rabbinic tradition was supposed to protect ended up being undermined and obscured by these traditions themselves. John MacArthur comments on this. It's saying, over time, the Jewish people began to measure their spiritual condition in terms of external conformity to traditional requirements and ceremonial rituals rather than in terms of sincere love for God and humble obedience to His Word. This is what happens. Tradition is set up. Maybe it has a noble intention. 
But eventually, that tradition becomes the metric by which everything else is judged. What initially starts off as a good desire to stave off worldliness, at least in the light in, in the situation here with the Pharisees, was an, a good desire to fight off worldliness. It became a badge of honor for the Pharisees and a pathway to self-salvation and pride. It's a lot easier to keep your traditions than to obey the Word of God. So, the Pharisees set up these traditions as a guard to the law, and they became the pathway to self-salvation and pride. And all of this self-righteousness and pride within the Pharisaic tradition was aided and abetted by the formalism that was present and emphasized. So that's the Pharisees. Started off well, established some traditions, and then they essentially elevated those traditions above the Word of God and set themselves to be the exemplars of holy living in Israel. That's the Pharisees. But Mark also mentions the scribes. The scribes were the biblical experts in Judaism. They were scholars who had mastered the Old Testament law and the rabbinic traditions. So you want to know anything about the the Mishnah, the Gemara, anything about the Jewish traditions? The scribes were the experts. They are sometimes called lawyers because they were the ones who knew the law better than anyone else. They were professional theologians. They could trace their history all the way back to Ezra and Nehemiah. They were responsible for teaching the Scriptures as well as copying the Word of God and preserving it. Honestly, even for us today, much of the Old Testament faithfully preserved by these scribes. But to be a scribe was to be a professional academic or a theologian. And many of the scribes belonged also to the sect of the Pharisees. To be a scribe was a profession. Pharisaism was a sect. So you could be a scribe and you could belong to the sect of the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the Essenes. So the Essenes had scribes, Sadducees had scribes, and the Pharisees had scribes. But when you brought these two groups together, the Pharisees and the scribes, the scribes that belonged to their sect, they made a powerful team. The scribes would mine out the detailed scholarship behind each Old Testament law and arbitrate between traditional interpretations. Even now, if you read the Mishnah, you, you can read a quote from some rabbi, and then there's three other contradictions. This rabbi, this rabbi says this, but Rabbi Blank says this, but Rabbi Blank says this. The scribes were the experts on that argument. The Pharisees, who were not scribes, their occupation was to perfect the art of living out the law. So the scribes mined out the details, the Pharisees implemented it. Not only did they implement it, but they spent their time in the villages and towns teaching others to do exactly what the traditions taught them to do. Look at me, follow me. Here's how you wash your hands, here's how you walk down the street. Here's how you know you can't walk that far. Here's how you know how much grain to carry on the Sabbath. Follow me. I'll show you. 
And as we see throughout the Gospels, but especially in our passage, the emphasis with the Pharisaic religion at this point was exclusively on the external forms of their religion. By the time the Lord comes on the scene, the Pharisees have such a powerful influence over the people that people would bow to them as they walked along the way. The Pharisees were the elite. They were the exemplars. And many received the word of the, as, from the Pharisees and their scribes as the word of God itself. And probably the best description of the Pharisees and what they were like comes from Matthew 23. So why don't you flip over to Matthew 23. This is our Lord's rebuke to the Pharisees. Verse 4, he, he says that the Pharisees tie up heavy loads and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves were unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. What are those heavy loads? Well, they're, they're traditions. It's their man-made ideas about what would please God. So they tied these heavy loads on men's shoulders, but they were not willing to move them with so much as a finger. Verse 5, Jesus says, They do all their deeds to be noticed by men. This is externalism. For they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. They love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men. They love all this stuff. This is what they feed off of. This is what they live for because Jesus says, Verse 5, they do all that they do to be noticed by men. That's why Jesus, in verse 6, is going to say of Mark 7, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. It was all about external forms, liturgy, processes. It was all about what people could see and observe so that they could get horizontal praise from other people. And then in verse 13, Jesus pronounces a series of judgments on the Pharisees that show you some of the, how pedantic they were, focused on these small details to the neglect of the issues of the heart. Matthew 23, 13. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people. For you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Their influence was so high and so powerful. Jesus says that you're not even entering the kingdom yourself, and all these people you're trying to help, you're shutting off their entrance into the kingdom of heaven because you're corrupt, corrupting them with your man-made traditions. Verse 14, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense, that's for show, you make long prayers. Therefore, you will receive greater condemnation. Verse 15, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. 
powerful. Woe to you blind guides, verse 16, who say, whoever swears by the temple, that's nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, oh, then he's obligated. Oh, oh, I said I swear by the temple. No, 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 no. Look, that doesn't mean anything. But if I swear by the gold of the temple, then I'm bound to uphold my word. You see how ridiculous that is. But this is what they were teaching the people was God's requirement on them. They were teaching the people, if you want to please God, this is what you have to do. And they were blind guides. Verse 17, you fools and blind men. Which is more important, the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, that is nothing, they say. But whoever swears by the offering on it, then he's obligated. You blind men. Which is more important, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering? Therefore, whoever swears by the altar swears both by the altar and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears both by the temple and by him who dwells within it. And whoever swears by heaven swears both by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. You see what Jesus is doing here. He's moving things from this external gold of the temple, what's on the altar, to the heart of it all, which is verse 22, the God who is on his throne. That is what it's about. You're doing all this stuff, but where is God? He's nowhere. Verse 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. You prioritize these small matters, but you neglect justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup, externals and the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish, so that the outside of it may become clean also. Beautiful picture. Painful picture. You don't worry about cleaning the inside, the heart issues. You just make sure all the externals are right so people look at you and love it. That's what you do. But inside is a full of a cup full of filth. Verse 27 Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear, so you too, you outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Now you get the point, right? Here's the issue. You're doing all the externals. Good for you. Well done. But inside is what matters to God. It's always been what matters to God. And Jesus here with the Pharisees is reminding them, at least in Matthew 23, He's condemning them for this practice of doing all the right things on the outside, 
but neglecting the heart. And this is the harshest judgment we see from our Lord. And it's aimed at people that I've, I'm calling traditionalists here. And I'm calling them traditionalists because they've elevated their tradition above the, the Word of God. And in doing that, they're able to hide from the weightier matters of the heart. They're able to do all the external things while they totally neglect the heart. Now, that is the traditionalist. Okay? But notice one more thing back in Mark chapter 7. Where did these traditionalists come from? The Pharisees, verse 1, and some of the scribes gathered around him when they had come from Jerusalem. So this is not just a, a roving band of scribes and Pharisees who just happen to end up here in Galilee at this time. Now, this is a delegation of scribes, much like we saw in Mark 3, verse 22. The delegation from Jerusalem, the center of Jewish orthodoxy, to Galilee to investigate Jesus. Maybe even, uh, perhaps some folks argue that it would have been the scribes and Pharisees in Galilee who would have dispatched to Jerusalem and said, hey, you've got to come down here and check this guy out. Send the official scribes and Pharisees to investigate him. And so that's what they do. They come, they watch Jesus and his disciples, and then notice in verse 2, they don't like what they see. They had come from Jerusalem and had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed. And then look down at verse 5. The Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of of the elders. Now, you know that word walk. It's the word peripateo, which is the word we see in Ephesians 4. It has to do with conducting your life. Why do they conduct their lives in a way that is contrary to the tradition of the elders and eat their bread with impure hands? Now, this is not just a curiosity sort of driven question. This is hard definitive, even angry. Why do they neglect our traditions? Why are they not washing their hands? Now that, of course, you know, has nothing to do with their hands being dirty. It has everything to do with the ritual, the liturgy that the Pharisees had enacted surrounding the eating of food. Even your dinner wasn't safe from the Pharisees. Right? They had rituals for everything, and this one is the one that Mark emphasizes here. He says, impure hands. That means that they're just common or ceremonially unclean. Why are they eating their food with these hands that are just so normal? Why are they not ceremonially clean and thus pleasing to God? You're supposed to be a rabbi, right? So what's wrong with your disciples? The Pharisees had a ritual that Mark describes in verse 3. He says, The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the traditions of the elders. Now, notice one thing here. The Pharisees and all the Jews. Notice how influential these guys were. 
It's not just that the Pharisees do this, but all the Jews do this as well because this is what the Pharisees had taught them. They insisted that if you want to please God, you better wash your hands right before you eat dinner. This is a little more than your grandmother saying that. This this has to do with religion and pleasing God. This is not just about germs here. Now, I want to be clear that the Old Testament does have hand-washing rituals. At least one. But that ritual was reserved for the priests before they offered sacrifices to God. We say that in Exodus 30 and Exodus 40. I want to read Exodus 30, verses 17 to 21. This is the place where we see the ritual first given, and then in chapter 40, verses 30 and 32, it's recapitulated. The text says this. Just notice the simplicity of it, okay? Because then we're going to contrast that with what the Pharisees had sort of interpreted this to be. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, You shall also make a laver of bronze with its base of bronze for washing. And you shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it. Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet from it. Now Aaron was the priest. His sons were the priests after him. They shall wash their hands and their feet from it. When they enter the tent of meeting, they shall wash with water that they may not die. Very serious. Or when they approach the altar to minister by offering in smoke a fire sacrifice to the Lord. So they shall wash their hands and their feet that they may not die. And it shall be a perpetual statute for them for Aaron and his descendants throughout their generations. Now notice the simplicity of that. Here's a bowl, laver of water. Before they offer any sacrifices, they better wash their hands. Simple command, but no elaborate rituals given. Aaron and the other priests were simply, simply to wash their hands as a symbol of setting their hands aside to God for the work they were about to do. But the Pharisees took that simple law and extended it to include everyone. And then on top of that, they specified the way in which you were to wash. So it's no longer just Aaron. Look, we're going to be people separated for God. And if we're going to do that, we better wash our hands like the priests. And so verse 3 says, they do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands. Literally, the text says this. They do not eat unless they wash their hands with the fist. We all know what that means, right? No. There's debate as to what that means could mean vigorously or carefully. Wash your hands very vigorously. Now, how do you measure that? It's like the Pharisees are watching you wash your hands. I don't know, it wasn't vigorous enough. I don't think God's happy with that. That's one interpretation. It could also reference, this is more likely, I think, a ritual that the Pharisees instructed the people to follow based on their traditions. And there were two of them. One of them required that they submerse their hands into clean water up to the wrists. So with the fist would be interpreted as to the fist. So their hands were baptized, that's the word used, into the water. 
There was another ritual that's described in the Mishnah, where the water was first poured from a ceremonially clean jar onto both hands, facing upward like this, and the water would drain down to the wrists, and then they would turn their hands the other way and pour water again down until the water dripped from their fingers. Now, you can go back and read Exodus 30 as much as you want, but you're not going to find that there. You're not going to find this kind of prescription. The Pharisees had added to the Word of God some new iteration of what it meant to wash your hands in a way that was pleasing to God. They had taken the initial principle, wash your hands, set them aside for the Lord from the priests, and they extended it to everyone and complicated it by adding ceremony. And this really is just one example. And just one example of hand-washing rituals. They had other rules for washing hands, and they had other rules for washing themselves. Look at verse 4. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they clean or cleanse themselves. So not only were there hand-washing rituals, but there were sort of full-body rituals. The word here for cleanse is the word baptizo, baptize. Every synagogue and most Jewish homes would have what was called a mikvah, which is essentially a baptistry in which the Jewish people would dip, immerse themselves in order to become ceremonially clean. And this was especially important for the Pharisees and anyone who wanted to be separated because at the marketplace, who would you run into? All manner of unclean people. Gentiles, Samaritans. Even if you didn't touch them, the dust that they touched would get on your feet. And you needed to cleanse yourself if you wanted to please the Lord. And then they had rituals for washing their dishes. Cups, pitchers, copper pots, all had to be ceremonially cleaned in order to be acceptable in the sight of God. That's, of course, they would be acceptable if you followed with exactness and strict compliance every step of their received tradition. Now, I hope you see, this is a long way from Deuteronomy 30, priests, wash your hands. But this is what tradition does. Uh, Tradition can be good or tradition can be bad. This is bad tradition. This is taking the Word of God and covering it up with added ideas coming from man's possibly good intentions. Notice verse 3. Where did all of this come from? It's a little bit dry, just going over. Here's what they did. And we, this was me doing like a sort of overview of some of these rituals. If you read the Mishnah, you see all of these intricate details as to how you ought to purify yourselves. The question becomes, where did they get all of this stuff from? Where did it come from? Verse 3 says that explicitly. They are the traditions of the elders. And then in verse 4, Mark says that they were, these were the things they had received to observe. And then verse 5, they're called the traditions of the elders again. This is on repeat. Anytime you see something like that repeated in a short section of Scripture, you should perk up and investigate it. 
Mark is trying to emphasize here that this is what was passed on to the Pharisees. They were doing what they did because this is what their mom and dad taught them to do. This is what grandpa and grandma taught them to do. Generation after generation had taken the word of God, twisted it, buried it under tradition, and then passed it to their children and said, this is what you need to do to please God. Over time, with the Pharisees, these traditions sort of snowballed and accumulated enough mass to where effectively, by the time Jesus gets on the scene, all of these traditions have covered the word of God. This is why Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. Right? He's, he's saying this over and over again because he's saying, look, the Pharisees are telling you this is what God says, but I'm here to tell you what God really says. And what strikes me as I think about verses 1 to 4, and really verse 5 as well, is that these guys were just handing down what they had received from others. And there are a number of warnings here for sure, but one that jumps out to me off the page when I read this passage is that we have to be careful what we are passing on to other people, right? I mean, you ask yourself, what am I passing on to my children, my grandchildren, my co-workers? What is it? These men had received something that was a perversion of the truth. And naturally, they held fast to it uncritically and then passed it on to their children. Reminds me where Jeremiah says, From our fathers we have inherited nothing but lies. So whatever you come away from this morning, one thing you need to consider is that question of what am I passing on to my disciples? If you're a parent, your disciples are your children and whatever beyond. Grandparent, your children, your grandchildren, and beyond. If you're single, whoever you're discipling, people you influence at work, you are passing things on to them. So you should ask yourself some questions like this. Am I passing on to my children and, and family truth or tradition? Am I passing on to them pure and undefiled religion that flows from the heart? Or am I giving them a mindless hypocrisy that elevates the form of religion above the substance of religion? Am I teaching my children that the most important thing about Christianity is to get the externals right? Don't you dare do that at church. Don't you know everyone's watching me? What are you teaching your children? I will say, if you want to ostracize and lead your children to spiritual ruin, follow the way of the Pharisee. If they see you living one way at church 
and reprimanding them for acting one way in front of your friends that go to church. But then behind the scenes, you act just like them. Oh, that will never do. And it will lead them to spiritual ruin, just as it's leading you there. You have to be on guard. Are you teaching your disciples that the externals are primary and that the heart is secondary? Or are you teaching them that what God wants is a pure religion that flows from the heart? That's one thing to take away. We have to be on guard against what we are passing to others. But there's also something we can take away here by way of our understanding of the Word of God. We need to see that as Christians, we have to constantly measure our practice and traditions by the Word of God itself. We dare not elevate any tradition above the Word of God, and we are not beyond that. It doesn't matter what we have received from others. What matters is what God has said. That's what matters. Now, if what we have received from others is what God has said, praise God. That's wonderful. So I'm not saying here, question all tradition. That would be foolish. But examine your tradition. We all have to do that. Is this tradition in line with what God has said? That's the question. We need to align ourselves first and foremost with the Word of God and underneath the Word of God so that we can evaluate everything else in light of God's Word. Everything we do and say, we ought to have chapter and verse 4. We should also join with the framers of the Geneva Confession of 1536 when they wrote this, We desire to follow Scripture alone as a rule of faith and religion without mixing it with any other thing which might be devised by the opinion of men apart from the Word of God, and without wishing to accept for our spiritual government any other doctrine than what is conveyed to us by that Word, without addition or diminution according to the command of our Lord. In other words, we believe in sola scriptura. The Word of God is our final and only authority in matters of faith and practice. And and look, we can't just ride on what has come to us uh, from those who've gone before us. We have to repeatedly, as parents, as, as a church, we have to repeatedly teach our children, our disciples, and our church that the Scripture alone is the authority for faith and practice. We don't need traditions. We don't need anything beyond the Word of God to govern our worship. One more warning here, and then we'll be closed. I think this passage, and we'll see this in more detail next week, reminds us that we must be aware of our fallen condition. That we have an incredible capacity to go through the motions of religion while neglecting the heart. We have an incredible capacity to go through the motions of religion and neglect the heart. Our worship can quickly become rote, mindless repetition 
just like it did with the Pharisees. They started off well, but boy, did they end poorly. And the way that you fight against that rote, mindless, ceremonial formalism is by constantly, in your mind, going back to the Word of God. Setting the Lord before you in your mind as you sing. Fighting that tendency to make your grocery list while we're singing hymns. Fighting that tendency to think about where you're going to go to lunch during the sermon. All right? Now, that's easy for me to say because I'm the one preaching. But it's, it's human nature. And you feel it. And you look around and you think, does anyone else feel that way? Is anyone else struggling that way? Yes, they are. We all struggle that way. We all struggle in the midst of the ceremony of our Sunday service to keep our minds on the main thing. And so we have to be aware of that. And when we come to church, we have to be aware that I'm going to be tempted to do a lot of other stuff. I'm going to be tempted mentally to check out, even though I know how to stand up, open my mouth and sing Amazing Grace and then sit back down. And maybe nod a couple of times uh, during the sermon. Right? We can do that sort of thing. You know you can, and I know I can too. This passage reminds us that religiously minded people like you and I have an incredible capacity to go through the routine of Christianity while our hearts are far from God. Now by that I don't mean that you're here this morning and you're struggling to worship God because you're so burdened by one thing or another. That's not what I mean. Because you're here, you're burdened by life, the difficulties of your life, and you want to worship God. right? Maybe you're a parent and you want to worship God, but you're distracted by your young children that you're trying to train to listen to sermons. I get that. Maybe you're here and you're under a physical trial and you want to worship God, but you're struggling. I'm not saying that that's mere formalism. Formalism is when you come to church and you intentionally, while you're a physically uh, healthy person, you are mentally checked out, but you're just going through all the routines of our Sunday service. That's formalism. That's the danger of the Pharisees here. Now, of course, this is a little more elaborate. That's an oversimplification. And we'll see the elaborateness of it next week. But when I look at this passage... For me, I'm thinking, boy, this is scary. I need to be alert. One, what am I passing on to my disciples? Two, am I checking the traditions that I'm doing against the Word of God? Have I done that? And three, am I seeking, when I sing, when I listen, when I read my Bible in the morning, am I seeking to offer pure heart worship to God? Or am I just checking the boxes? Great spiritual inventory for us. And our Lord here is going to expose the Pharisees for their hypocrisy and their vanity in worship in verses 6 to 13. And we'll pick up with that next week. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this insightful x-ray of our hearts. Help us to not be like the Pharisees, but to worship you in spirit and in truth. And Father, to be diligent to examine what we are passing on to our disciples, to be diligent to evaluate all that we've received by your word, 
And Father, to keep close watch on our hearts. And Father, we ask all this in the name of Christ. Amen.